was interested in somehow creating that feeling so that it formed a sense of community. So it's not as much about the experiences as it is the repercussions of those experiences. To do that, to start to build that language, I had to use actual experiences, especially actual experiences that I had had so that I could gauge (laughs) whether I was touching into the right emotion. Like if I was going to make work that felt like that heavy burden of being a caregiver, then I had to create the piece and then feedback was important to find out if I had reached the goal. So my work really was the stepping stone of, okay, I'm going to touch on this experience and see if I can capture it in a physical form that creates an emotional response. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 245th episode, I'm super excited to be joined by Rebecca Casman, who spoke with me from Flint, Michigan, where she currently lives and works. We talk all about her background and our interest in exploring and learning a ton of new processes, how that eventually led to her becoming an art teacher, and then going back to school, earning her undergraduate and graduate degrees. We talk about her trajectory, her interest and love of sculpture and ceramics, how that evolved into exploring new materials, new processes, and creating a number of beautiful installations that are often very based on traumatic and emotional events in her personal life that get distilled into these abstracted sculptures, but also leave tons of room for the viewer to interact and in some cases literally interact. So we're very excited to talk all about her work. I do want to note that Rebecca was one of our 2020 MFA competition winners selected last year by Tim Kowalczyk, who is our juror. So we're especially excited to feature her work. You can check out more of it by visiting studiobreak.com or you can go over to her website, rebeccacasement.com. And be sure to follow her on Instagram at rmcasement underscore art. As I was just hinting at, you can check out more interviews on studiobreak.com. Each of those posts there have the interviews, obviously, but they also have images of the artist's artwork and links to their website, so you can find out more information or check them out on Instagram. You can also find Studio Break on social media, so be sure to like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break, and of course on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. Be sure to follow there. And of course, you can follow me at David Linaway on Instagram, Twitter, you name it. And now that we've got those pesky announcements out of the way, let's get into our interview with Rebecca Casement. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Rebecca Casement. How are you doing this morning? I'm good. How are you? Excellent, excellent. And it's great to have you on. We were just reminiscing. You were selected what seems like eight years ago, but it was actually (laughs) last year for the 2020 Studio Break student competition. Uh, Tim Kowalczyk, who's also a, a ceramic artist and selected your work from amongst a number of applicants. So it's great to have you on. Thank you. It is really a pleasure to be here. And I can't wait to learn all about your work. You know, again, it's interesting to see, you know, some of the older kind of ceramic work and then obviously some of the newer mixed media forms, how they've kind of evolved into installations. So it's going to be really interesting to kind of learn all about you. So, yeah, let's let's dive right in. Where are we talking to you from, by the way? I'm in Flint, Michigan, actually. 
Ah, so again, in the news recently. In, in the... <laughs> yes, again. <laughs> <laughs> well, so are, are you from that area? Did you grow up in, in Michigan? Well, I grew up in Michigan, but I grew up in northern lower Michigan, uh, which is only about an hour and a half from where I am now and about 800 years from where I am now. <laughs> Just a totally different world. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Were, were you somebody that was always making stuff when, when you were growing up? I was. Not the traditional kind of things, though. I was uh, making forts in the woods and I was building with my dad. My dad has always been one of those people that builds a a pole barn and then a lean to on the pole barn and then more lean tos <laughs> off the lean tos. So <laughs> I grew up, you know, running electrical and putting roofs on and things like that. And so by proxy, I did lots of building. And then my mom, you know, taught me how to sew and to do things like that. And so I have always considered myself to be a maker. Was that something that kind of got extended into to school as well? Were you like taking art classes and things like that growing up and, and enjoying that, I'm assuming? No, actually. Interesting. I, all I can assume, based on thinking about this over the course of the last few days before this interview, was that I think it was so ubiquitous with who I was and how I grew up that making was just a thing. It wasn't special. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Does that make sense? It, it, sure. You know, I took things like, I think I took one art class, in, maybe at the beginning of high school, and that was it. And I took wood shop and metal shop and home ac and, but I would not be what most would consider a traditional art kid in any sense of the word. I'm curious what occupied all your time and maybe like a garage band. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, geez. Yeah, I think just like now in life, the same was then I, I was in sports, and I was in drama, and I was in choir. And I just loved experiencing all sorts of different things. Mm -hmm. I have never learned to play an instrument, <laughs> I will say that much. <laughs> but I, I just really enjoy experiencing new things. And so I just tapped into whatever I could find that interested me. It's interesting, because everybody has different paths for all of this and they all somehow wind up in roughly the same area, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In terms of like graduating from high school, then what was your plan? Did you, you know, plan on continuing sports in, in college or did you have dreams for college or what was going on? Well, I grew up in a very traditional home. And so I went to college thinking I would study Special education was what I went for originally mm -hmm. and emotionally impaired. And really the intent was I do that until I can get married and have kids and then I stay home with them, mm -hmm. which I look back now, you know, 45 year old me is like, oh my goodness, girl, come on now. <laughs> right. I mean, that's great. <laughs> I love that. But also, <laughs> sure. yeah, I, I went to college in the beginning for that, but Difficult circumstances in life caused me to drop out after my second year. And then I met my my daughter's father and got married and was a stay-at-home mom, exactly as I had thought I would do. And so obviously there's some things that have, you know, happened in between those years, you know, in between going mm -hmm. back to, to studying. Is there 
maybe a nice way to kind of maybe talk about that experience or is it something that you would want to maybe kind of skip forward to or? Well, no, I, I mean, the reason I, I did go back to school when I was 36, I had very lovely principal at my daughter's school, um, saw something in me that I, I didn't see mm -hmm. and he needed an art teacher. And so <laughs> he said, I think you would be very good at this. I would like you to do it. It was a small parochial school that my my daughter's father wanted the girls to go to. And so you didn't, it didn't require a degree to teach art at the school. And so I'm like, okay, I love new experiences. I'll try it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I ended up teaching art there, kindergarten through eighth grade for five years. And then um, at 36, I got a divorce from my daughter's father and I needed a way to support us. And so I thought, well, I just decided to go back to school on a whim, truly on a whim. I applied in January and started one week later. Uh, wow. <laughs> and I didn't know what I was doing. I just thought, well, I've been doing this for five years. I could get a degree and then, you know, provide for me and my daughters. And that's where it began. I did not believe that I was an artist by any stretch of the imagination, because I couldn't draw was, was sure, what I sure. thought. <laughs> and so I did enjoy teaching and I love making and I thought, well, this could be a really, this could be a fun way to go about it. Yeah, yeah. I had the distinct pleasure of going to Mott Community College in Flint. And they have just a phenomenal foundations program. And I took my first 3D class, I think my second semester, and that changed everything for me. It just set a whole different path. I would imagine too, just because like you're saying, you don't have that background, that it was something where you could come to that experience and just be like, oh, you're going to teach me how to, you know, use a torch, <laughs> you know, and you're excited about it. Or they're going to be like, you're yeah. going to heat this up and pour this molten, you know, iron into this. Whereas like, again, sometimes you have maybe people that aren't as uh, attentive or the maybe ones that get injured. I don't know. But, you know, being able to learn all those processes and new things, given what you were saying in terms of your background and, and the, your younger interests. I mean, I would imagine this is just just awesome. Yeah, it really was. I, uh, I found my niche. What I couldn't draw, I could sculpt without it didn't feel like it was effort. Mm hmm. And it was really eye-opening to me. It was, frankly, it was kind of mind-blowing to just be inherently good at something in art when you'd spent, you know, all that time thinking, well, I'm not an artist. Right. And that's one of the things I love about art education and especially about phenomenal art educators is what they are able to open up in students, I think, is just really profound. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, we were talking about, you know, unofficially is that kind of mm -hmm. discovery that, that people have, especially when it's something that's new, you know, when you start realizing if you're good at one thing and you put some time into it, you can learn new <laughs> processes. And, you know, yep. I would imagine then you kind of just took inventory of all those different skills to, to be able to start kind of exploring. I think what it, what it really taught me was, I don't know what I don't know. <laughs> I had these beliefs that I wasn't an artist because I couldn't draw. Well, now I, I phone 3D. What else is there? 
So it really pushed me to start exploring every medium I could that started to fit into that wheelhouse, Mm -hmm. always pushing my boundaries, always, always making myself uncomfortable. (laughs) Sure. sure. Um, Did you start with ceramics there? I did. The ceramics teacher came into the 3D room and I was making these little birds out of, geez, I think it was just, I don't even know what kind of material (laughs) it was at this point that I was making. And he, he came into the 3D room and he's like, why didn't, why didn't you make these out of ceramics? And I'm like, that's a thing. Like I said, I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. <laughs> and, he was, and he's like, yeah. And he started to talk to me a little bit. And so he's like, sign up for ceramics next semester and I'll teach you some things. And he, he actually was quite pivotal in my trajectory from that point on. He'd been educating for a very long time and he was, he was funny. He would sit down next to me on the wheel, which I'm, I can do very proficiently now, but it's not something I enjoy. Mm-hmm he would just throw these glorious tall vases with zero effort, you know, and I'm throwing a wonky cup (laughs) and he'd look at mine and just laugh like outright. (laughs) (laughs) And it it just spurred me on to learn and to, to grow and to um, become better. So that was a, maybe like a two year experience. What did you, what did you transfer to or where did you go afterwards? It was, they had a, an AFA, an associate of fine art. And so I, I decided to transfer to MSU under his recommendations because he felt they had a ceramic program with educators there that aligned with what he was seeing in me. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I applied thinking I wouldn't get in and, <laughs> <laughs> and ended up finishing out the rest of my bachelor's of fine art at MSU. When you think back to those years, were there things that you were kind of interested in that are maybe kind of interesting to kind of highlight? Were you kind of throwing a lot of vessels like you were talking about, or was it more sculptural or? It was more sculptural. I, um, looking back now, I realize I've been drawn to art forms that I could use predominantly just my hands to make. Mm-hmm. And so I loved the hand building technique. I started out taking just a clump of clay and just pulling away and seeing what I could find within it. And I never made anything representational. It was, I think I, I was too afraid that I couldn't represent it well. So mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to grab the essence of what it was not understanding that that was conceptual thinking. Uh, (laughs) It was really just self-preservation, I think. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, yeah, I I started out with sculptural, ceramic sculptural forms, which I have a number of them still at the house. They're so heavy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I laugh now. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is a wonder it didn't explode. (laughs) I have some of those, I think, at my mom's house, so... Fortunately, she was able to take all of them from me when I took my one ceramics class. So, uh. <laughs> There's something precious about ceramics. I don't know what it is. You know, I have a master's degree in it, but when my girls took ceramics in high school, I'm like, I must keep all of the things. Right. <laughs> interesting, interesting. And they're terrible. They're <laughs> because, you know... I'm sorry, but everybody just starting out in ceramics, the stuff is not, it's just quirky. Right. 
because it's quite the skill you have to learn. <laughs> As someone that maybe didn't have, you know, that background and going to museums and, you know, cracking the art history books at a young age and, you know, thinking, oh, I want to do art. Mm -hmm. Were there types of art that really stood out as like something that was appealing? Like, oh, man, I didn't realize art could be this. I want to do something like this or I'm inspired by this. As I went along, I started to accumulate artists like that. I found that I was careful not to pay too much attention to artists that, that, professors would tell me my work looked like. Mm -hmm. I think because I've always been afraid, I guess is the right word, to be influenced, to move in that direction. I always wanted my trajectory to be more fluid. So I tend to be more inspired by artists who aren't in ceramics. Mm -hmm. I love ceramics, but I stay away from it. <laughs> <laughs> And so the first artist that ever caught my attention was Gustav Klimt. Mm -hmm. I loved how he piecemealed things together in this really glorious way. And those bold golds and all of that. I don't know why it attracted me so much in the beginning, but it really did. Because my work is very quiet when it comes to color. <laughs> right. <laughs> For the most part, it's very quiet. But his color palette just was fascinating. I, I think because it seemed so different. And then in my final year of undergrad, I took an art history class that had to do with gender and sexuality. And one of the last people that we learned about was Hannah Wilkie, and more specifically her Intravenous series, mm -hmm. which I don't know if you know, that's a series of photographs that actually her husband took as she was, she was dying from lymphoma. And it completely transformed how I thought about what I was doing, because I was working on things that were about human experiences and how the people and, and things we go through affect who we are. And she did it in a way that was very, it was so boldly personal. There's a a photograph in particular of her laying in a bathtub and she's nude and she's getting her hair washed, but the water's just running on her. And it was so intimate and it was so vulnerable. It really challenged how far I was willing to push my concept, how far I was willing to push uh, using my own experiences to touch into the elements that I wanted to touch into. So her intravenous series was really the most pivotal that changed how I thought. And then after that, it, it became artists like Louise Bourgeois and, and Eva Hesse mm -hmm. because they explored with materials on such a grand scale. One of the rules that I have heard all the way since I started art school is, you know, if you're going to work, you should work in these particular mediums and you should only exhibit certain mediums together. And if it, if there's too much, it becomes too chaotic. And, and it felt very confining to me to say, well, I'm making ceramics, so I'll, I can only use ceramics in an exhibition or, or I have to explore in this line. I did, I didn't like that. So those, those two artists I found to be fascinating and inspirational. And then the Dutch fashion designer, Iris Van Herpen, mm -hmm. has just changed how I think about sculpture. She is mind-blowingly pushing boundaries 
So I would say those ones probably had the most effect in where I was going and what I was looking at at the time. And even now. Well, and it's something that I feel like I can glean from the work a little bit. If anybody is listening to this, definitely go check out the work that's on your website. That's RebeccaCaseman.com. And a piece that sticks out to me maybe from this time is perspective. If people go back to the sculptural works from the you know earlier sculptures, there are some more functional kind of you know traditional kind of cups and things like that. But then there's this piece that sticks out, perspective, which kind of becomes almost like an organ-like shape or like a coral-type shape. And it looks like it starts to kind of incorporate some of these other materials. So it kind of maybe would be something interesting for me to you know listen to. Maybe you talk about that piece a little bit just because it seems to kind of highlight that combination of different materials and something that's moving away from something that has to be, you know, functional or something that's as traditional, if that makes sense. Absolutely. That piece was one of the first ones I, where I really started to use ceramics to delve into the personal. And there are four different views to the inside in this piece. And those represent me, my two daughters, and my my now husband's uh, perspectives on my daughter's illness Mm -hmm. and how it affects each of us. And so it really, I, I was working on playing with how do I represent what we're each seeing, how it changes our life, how much it affects our, our day to day. And so of course, you know, her view of the inside piece, which is a, a clock going off, off a cliff because there's always that sense of the inevitable mm-hmm. <laughs> death as the inevitable. Right. Right. And so it, her view is a view of the whole thing, the, the sad little piece of driftwood and, and the clock. And then as it moved away, you know, it was her. And then my view is, is a little less clear. And, and, and I was really trying to figure out how to give the viewer just a small glimpse of an experience. And that whole concept, that whole idea of giving someone a glimpse of an experience ended up being the overarching concept of what I do. And so I think it's very interesting that you picked out that piece. (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) I think you can see that thread, you know, and you know, that's something that's really interesting, you know, for any artist, I think in hindsight, that's been making work for a long time too. You start recognizing those those moments and i'm sure you know looking back on it it's something that you know clearly sticks out for you as well yes and so it seems like then to kind of leave that experience like those were the types of things that you started to become interested in like utilizing these forms these abstractions to kind of maybe loosely talk about real world experiences is that accurate you know what it what it really ended up being was I'm interested in talking about the emotions and the responses to experiences. And so what I found throughout life is when something difficult happens, uh, people don't know how to respond to the person that it happened to, and they end up feeling very isolated. So I wanted to try and figure out how to create work that would create community. And to do that, I had to create a toolbox of visual language that would say the things that we can't say in words. Like if you lose a child or if you lose someone that you just absolutely love with everything in you, you don't feel sad. You feel this word that doesn't exist. Yeah. Right, right. I was interested in 
somehow creating that feeling so that it formed a sense of community. So it's not as much about the experiences as it is the repercussions of those experiences. To do that, to start to build that language, I had to use actual experiences, especially actual experiences that I had had so that I could gauge (laughs) whether I was touching into the right emotion. Like if I was going to make work that felt like that heavy burden of being a caregiver, then I had to create the piece and then feedback was important to find out if I had reached the goal. So my work really was the stepping stone of, okay, I'm going to touch on this experience and see if I can capture it in a physical form that creates an emotional response. Is that something that you would have to like consciously like draw out sketches or is it something that you visualized and kind of worked intuitively? Like maybe describe a little bit of that process. Cause I'm imagining, you know, you, you can pull from anything, right? So, you know, what, you know, what's valid, what's going to make for an interesting piece. See, that's a great question. I would say the first just <laughs> full on exploration into this would be the caregiver installation. Mm-hmm. I did that in 2017. It was my first semester at grad school. And my my major professor knew me already. And so he knew what I was good at and what I had no idea what I was doing in. And so he <laughs> told me that for the semester, I was allowed to work in textiles, which, yeah, I had not done that. I had made quilts, but that is not going to count. Um, (laughs) So I could work in textiles and I could work in science. Another one that was not, I knew nothing about. And so, you know, as I'm thinking through this, I I thought, well, you know, I, I met with different professors that were kind enough to let me walk into their office and say, I don't know anything about this. Can you teach me? And, And the textile professor at MSU, the one I went to, Rebecca Schuling, she's like, well, what do you want to know? And I said, I have realized that I don't even know what questions to ask. So I need you to just start talking. (laughs) (laughs) I need you to start telling me things and I'll ask questions based on that. And it was a really great way to go about it because instead of coming in and saying, well, I've made quilts and steering her, I really went in with this, the same exploration that I have had my whole life in, okay, I let's try something new. And so I did that with both the science and the textile. And I thought, okay, I don't know how to make these into individual sculptures. I don't know how to make an individual sculpture about science and textile. Right, right. And so I thought, well, the other thing I haven't ever tried was installation. And so why not? (laughs) (laughs) What could go wrong? (laughs) Oh, yeah. What could go wrong? (laughs) And so there was this wonderful little studio gallery um, in the basement of MSU, uh, room eight. And so I reserved this room eight and I just tried to create a space that talked about how it felt to be a caregiver, a long-term caregiver for someone that you love who is dying. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. And so that's where it all started to play in. So I'm like, okay, what are the things that make up my daily life and pills? So there's the pill sequence on there. And those are all 
handmade ceramic pills, thousands and thousands and thousands of them, because, you know, the pill giving became, it's all encompassing. You don't give it, they die. So, um, but also they were in these glass jars that were etched with naturally etched. They came from the science department, not safe for human consumption, set on the jar. And so I created those. And then the other was a to-do list. And so the textile piece that I created was my actual to-do list. I always have to-do lists. So it was my actual to-do list. And I hand-stitched it on these separate strips of fabric. And it ranged anywhere from practice throwing to research home funeral options for my daughter. So it was a really stark reminder of how, you know, you you go through life doing all the regular things mm-hmm. <laughs> that you normally do, but then there's also this other thing that's always there, always pressing. So that became the textile piece. And then the science part was I took raw clay, made it into a form and let it dry out. And then over the course of the week that this installation was up, I let water just drip on it slowly out of an IV. And I recorded the disintegration of the clay over time and then captured the imprint of the clay rolling off the tray onto the paper underneath. Talking about, we cling to these things that if you do this thing, everything will be all right. And so the thing that we clung to was, you know, just drink water. It's good for your heart. Just drink water. And so it felt like that's all we were saying was have you drank enough water, drink enough water. Um, And it got to the point where she was in congestive heart failure because too much water. (laughs) So it's this play on, you know, your best intentions, right? You're trying to do what's right, but it's what's right. What's the right option. There isn't one, there's nothing you can do. And then the final element in this room were these, they were timekeeping mechanisms, but they came out of like industrial equipment. And so they just ticked and they were offset at different intervals. So it was this weird discord of three different mechanisms ticking, you know, offbeat and then the water dripping offbeat and you walked in and you just felt so anxious. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that's the only thing you felt in the room was this sense of anxiety and dread. And, and that was really my first foray into taking the full breadth of one of my experiences and trying to create that sense of community. Like you can feel what I feel for a minute. And then to be able to take people in there and get their response without telling them what any of it means and see if I was, see if I was close. So this was really a great experiment for me for future work. Well, and it strikes me that, you know, that idea of trying to combine different materials to say something mm-hmm. or to, you know, break some of those rules or, you know, you don't know how some of those things are going to work together. You know, it seems like a great endeavor into that because clearly it stirs something up and it's, again, a really beautiful installation. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And again, to kind of think about that relative to your other work, some of your more sculptural kind of pieces, it kind of makes me think about the you know, the installation that comes after that, the Sojourns piece, because, and did I pronounce it anywhere close, by the way? Yes, okay. Sojourns, yes. <laughs> Sojourns, sorry. It's like a, <laughs> it seems like an awkward thing for me to say. But again, you know, <laughs> there are some pieces that kind of are reminiscent of that with the, you know, the list that looks yep. like it was included in there. But then there's also, I guess, more liberty taken with some of the, you know, ceramic sculptural pieces that become 
not necessarily like vessel-like forms, but almost like, again, maybe like symbols for something or stand-ins to kind of maybe, you know, turn that, that narrative or, you know, that suggestion to the viewer in a different way. But maybe talk about this, this installation a little bit and that relationship between the, the more ceramic sculpture versus the more like installation type pieces that, and that relationship, I guess. So I got invited back to Mott to do a, a solo exhibition, which was such an honor. And I decided to create this installation more talking about the moments in life that changed and defined who I was. You know, because I'm going back to the place where it started, it feels like 80 years later and it's only been four years, three years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel like a completely different person. And it was because of all of the experiences in between. And so I wanted to combine more of the more of the figure in it. I also wanted to reuse some pieces from different exhibitions that I had done because those are part of, you know, the transformation of who I was as an artist and as a as a human. So the individual ceramic sculptures each represent people, actually people in my life. And so this became more of a a shrine feel, an homage to the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. So that's why the, I did another piece to go along with the first to-do list. I did the second semester's to-do list. So it was <laughs> a, full, a full year of my to-dos. <laughs> right, right to really talk about that year and the changes that had happened. And so, yeah, I, I definitely started to delve much more into using abstract sculpture as a figurative element, as a, a stand-in for people and experiences with people that I wanted to be more subtle about. I wanted to be more secretive because even if you want to share your how you feel about something, you don't always want to share the details. Mm-hmm. You don't want to name names. You don't want to, <laughs> right? you know? <laughs> and so I was really interested in if I could capture the essence of someone, the essence of something in a more concrete sculptural form, rather than an installation that you would walk through. And I, I get to dictate all of your emotions <laughs> as you walk through it. So one of the things that's interesting to me about Sojourns is that, you know, we talked a little bit about this idea of the figure, these sculptures kind of being stand-ins for figures. And to me, it is a natural lead-in to talk about another installation without words, because, you know, very literally you're, you're involved in it in maybe a different, different role. But maybe talk about that relationship, because again, you know, there are these kind of like sculptural clay pieces and, and photographs of you and a number of other pieces, but maybe talk about this installation a little bit. Yeah, this installation was an uncomfortable one for me. I don't enjoy being in front of the camera. Uh, <laughs> I can settle into it and do the job, but it's it's a job to do that. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to make myself uncomfortable. I mean, I, I've maintained that same mindset that I had in early undergrad of pushing myself outside of my comfort zone. And so I realized that if I'm going to talk about personal experiences and if I'm going to talk about the intimate, which emotions are intimate, 
then I needed to be included in it and I needed to be vulnerable. And so like with the caregiver installation, my physical presence was every day I would have to go in and restart the IV and I had to actually care give the caregiver installation. So my physical presence was the taking care of it. And I did that very much on purpose. With this one, I wanted to really talk about starting to see and, and really see people. And so that became very much about body language. So we tend to read the face to try and decide how somebody feels. But the reality is we say so much more in our body language and most especially with our hands and our neck. So Mm -hmm. at least from my personal experience. And so I uh, asked a photographer friend of mine, we knew each other very well, if she would be willing to talk with me about the very difficult personal experiences that I had had. And if she would take photographs as we talked and she would capture my emotion as we talked. And so I, I just had a ball of clay. I, I just wore the tank top so you could see more body. Mm-hmm. It was really about as I ta- I'm just moving the clay with my hands, but as I'm talking and as I'm feeling the things we're talking about naturally, instinctually, my body responded. And I wanted you to really be confronted. I wanted the viewers to really be confronted with that, with the emotion of it, with the rawness of it. And so we took like 500 photographs. Wow. And then I made them quite large so that no matter where you were in the room, I was looking at you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Because she stood right at the camera so that I was forced to, it looks like I'm making eye contact. I I wanted you to not be able to escape what I was, what I was emoting. And then the sculptures, they were created in the same way, just of holding clay and manipulating clay as I thought or talked about difficult experiences. And then I just let them dry as is. And so I, I was trying to recreate that whole bodily experience within the clay and have it mimic what was going on in the sculptures. And then the entire exhibition was available to touch. So I I had a sign up that in this particular exhibition, you should and can touch everything in there. And so it was really fascinating to watch people come in and like try and put their hands where my hands had been. And, uh, you know, one of my friends was in there doing it and she's like, I, you know, when I touch this one, I feel like I feel when something hurts Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I'm like, okay, good. (laughs) So it was really this play between the visual and the physical and trying to get you to recreate those emotions. Well, I love the way that the photographs, you know, kind of activate the sculptures and kind of Mm -hmm. have that relationship. I think that, you know, one of the things that maybe is more difficult to think about in terms of maybe sculpture sometimes is being able to kind of connect with that and, you know, to be in this room where there's nothing that kind of guides you through that. So I think that there's just enough lead in for, you know, somebody to start kind of making those connections, you know, and, and seeing, seeing the variations of some of the sculptures in this piece as well, because there are the ones that you're kind of describing, like all of the kind of hand forms that are sitting on this this table that has a really kind of nice reflective surface. But then there's a number of other pieces. And one that sticks out is this one that looks like it's like a sculptural form on a bed of nails. 
Yeah. Maybe talk a little bit about that one. That one was a really fascinating one to make and to see it come to fruition. Those are big. You can't really get the scale of those nails. Those are huge. Those are like three inch. Mm -hmm. And I'm really interested in the work that I do and repetition. Mm -hmm. It almost becomes like reverence, this individual pushing in of each of those. It was well over a hundred nails, this individual work at getting them pushed down and getting them right. And then having the the clay then sit on the top and every time somebody touched it, more broke off. Mm-hmm. Like as they're trying to gently touch this piece, as they're even if they're trying to lift it up off the nails, um, every touch caused more destruction. So as the weeks went on, I got to see more and more of it pile up in the nails. And I, I think that was one of the most fascinating things about this exhibition was to go in every morning and to see what had moved and what had changed and to see the oil build up on some of the sculptures like this one were really interesting to see. You know, during the day, I wouldn't see people in there, but then I come in the next morning and they're moved and they're touched. And I think it really showed the hesitancy, maybe, that we have in publicly addressing any of these. The other one that was really interactive was the one that's in the black tar. Mm -hmm. That was goo. You know how kids are making the, <laughs> I can't remember what it's called, <laughs> the putty sort of stuff where you can you can just make it. Sure. And so I just set the sculpture in that tray of the goo that I had made with the black. And every time I came in, it was flipped a different way. And the, the black was on more elements and it would dry in areas and be like, almost like lava when it when it gets on something and then it dries mm-hmm. and it has that, that strange built up quality, this had the same thing. And it was really, it was really neat to watch people interact with this and how they wanted it to stand and, and what they were interested in seeing. So this one, it started to tap into the interaction that I was looking for was this installation did. But what I did find from this installation was that within the realm of ceramics, I was not able to get the scale that I wanted. I felt very confined to a specific size range, part because I, you know, as I went through school, I was always thinking about what I would be able to do after I left school. Like, I'm very logical in that way. Like, if I can't do cone 10 pit fires... (laughs) (laughs) When I go home to Flint in my little, you know, city lot, then why would I spend time learning it at school? So I knew that I wouldn't have access to be able to make huge ceramics once I left there. So I needed to really start to think about if I was creating this this visual language, I was going to have to branch outside of ceramics even more and um, push those boundaries. That seems like a natural lead in to kind of talk about your your thesis exhibition because it looks like these are kind of informed from a number of sculptures that you were making with like chicken wire and I think like plaster forms. Is that right? Yes. So I I have the distinct pleasure of being the artist in residence at Glen Arbor in Michigan. It is a 
National Park mm-hmm. and they have a artisan residency program. And when I went, it was cold, like wet, 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 and cold. And so <laughs> all of the materials that I normally use, I couldn't use at, because the the space that they give the artist is an old, it's an old barn and it's not heated. So whatever it is outside, it just is. And so it was this super rainy, it was like low 50s, super cold out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so I was forced to really think about what materials I could play with to expand out of where I had been. So the I had brought with me wire and aluminum screening and some chicken wire. And I really started to create these forms, uh, my stitches series in just the sculptural section of my website is what came out of that residency. I really liked that I could still get that emotive quality. I could still get that, that clay feel mm-hmm. <laughs> in the sculptural forms by utilizing the wire. So then my responsibility was to figure out how to layer something so that it wouldn't be so heavy that I couldn't hang it from a ceiling. It didn't need to be fired. And I could create in the way that I normally create. And that is a make and respond type of style. You you asked me if I draw up ahead of time or if I plan, and I don't. In fact, I don't ever plan. This installation, (laughs) we have to give a proposal (laughs) at the Broad Art Museum. And the proposal and what installation went up are nothing alike. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. Thank goodness they trusted me (laughs) (laughs) because there's zero, zero likeness. I don't plan. I manipulate materials and I respond to what they do. So that's one of the reasons I fell in love with clay was because of its fallibility. It doesn't matter what you do with clay, you can do all of the right things and you can open a kiln and it has broken. Or you get it all done and you get it glazed and you open the kiln and it has broken. (laughs) (laughs) And you just have to either choose to throw it out or to make it beautiful. And I liked how that correlated with life. I mean, we make these plans, right? We make these plans of what we're going to do and how it's going to turn out. And it so rarely does. Something happens and it throws a wrench in it or something horrible happens and you have to respond. And you either can choose to not or you can say, okay, this is a new normal. What am I going to do with it? How am I going to make the best out of this that I can? And that's not a rosy disposition. That That's preservation. That's saying, I'm not going to stay here. Mm-hmm. I can't. Right. So I love that clay responds that way. And, and I found that I could create that same responsiveness to my sculptures with the chicken wire because I would knot up the chicken wire in different forms and then put a coating of plaster gauze. And then once that's all dry, I could look and sometimes I, I didn't like it and I just hack a hole right through the center of it and, <laughs> and you know, rethink the form. And I just kept playing with it in that way until they really started to feel like bodies suspended in time. 
So after I had done the plaster gauze, I needed something that would shore it up and make it even sturdier. And so I layered then a paper mache paste over the top of it just with my hand. And so they, what I've done is taken these three materials that on their own, they are not strong, not really. And because I layered them, because I, I added these elements of this happens, then this happens, then this happens, there was strength in that. And I really like how that correlates with life and experiences. Yeah, absolutely. To be more specific, relative to the reclamations piece, this is mm-hmm. the MFA piece, right? Thesis? Yep. We've got all these kind of like egg-like forms as well. <laughs> so again, it kind of presents like this, there's that figurative relationship, that life relationship. Yep. As you were kind of describing, you kind of have the sensation of like these weighted figures that are kind of floating. And then there's mm-hmm. that kind of, in a similar similar way to some of the other works, the viewers kind of maybe invited to kind of think about the, the relationship between the two. Yes. You know, there's always that play between what's broken and what's not. What is our view on what's broken? What is our view on what's discarded and discardable? And what is still usable? And and so the nest egg forms kind of have that, that feel of an empty nest is really useless, right? (laughs) it is and yet it wasn't at what in time and more than likely a new bird will come and make use of that nest so is it really discardable no and I find eggshells to be the same way I use eggshells in all sorts of things and I think I'm pushing the boundary of our idea of what is discardable what makes something useless um, what makes something broken beyond repair and I am really interested in pushing that boundary because I think we write off a lot of things and a lot of people as broken beyond repair. And and it can be the simplest things, you know, as a, I don't know if I want to go there. <laughs> well, you feel free if you, if you feel like there's a way to, that kind of leaves it in a similar way, by the way, with the sense of mystery, you know? Right. Because I mean, for me... I mean, everything that I make work about is from personal experience. And so actually in the broken shell pieces, I'm often thinking about uh, abuse and assault Mm -hmm. and our idea that once that happens, the person is less than they were. Mm -hmm. I I really take offense to that. (laughs) But... It's a strange transition, isn't it, to go from grad school out into the art world, because in grad school, you're supposed to just say the dirty stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But outside of grad school, you have to temper it. I just find that people want it tempered. I have to learn how to... (laughs) I have to learn how to talk about the work in a way that's more tempered and less just this is this is it <laughs> i think that makes total sense because just like with a lot of your work it leaves a lot for the viewer to kind of have their own space in there you know i think there's a yes. fine line between just being you know wandering around and having no idea what's going on and then also you know being so direct that it becomes not interesting there's that sense of mystery about it yes and i'm always trying to create both a sense of mystery and 
a sense of beauty because we have this idea that if bad things happen, it's all ugly. It's not. It's not all ugly. Right. It's interesting to think about that relationship to maybe one last thing that I think we definitely need to talk about is also the evolution of the the sculptural kind of ceramic forms, because again, they've kind of really kind of been pushed towards that, just that idea, but then they're also kind of very distressed in very subtle ways. It's in some ways, the more colorful of the work that that we've looked at, but maybe talk about some of, some of those recent sculptural pieces that are, that are earthenware ceramic. Yes. I tend to work in only low fire because I love the glazes I can get from there. I can get those very distressed feelings like in Elysium, which is the Mm -hmm. first one that you see when you go to the page. It has that glaze that what it actually does when I when I fire it is it creates boils is the best way I can (laughs) describe like blisters um, all over the piece. And then I take a sanding tool and sand off all the blisters and that's what's left. And I love that play between the beautiful and the, it's not grotesque, but it's, it's not attractive either. (laughs) It's lovely, but not attractive. (laughs) It's interesting too, because it seems almost like alien in in the sense or like something that's unseen. I think again, and maybe you get this all the time, but I start thinking of almost like coral. Yeah. And it strikes me as something that you're not, you know, usually seeing, you know, it's something under the surface. It's something that's distressed. It's, it's has a very similar kind of aesthetic. And like you're saying, I mean, there's, you know, there's another one, how will you know? And there's a mm-hmm. documentation of it that almost looks very like face-like, you know? Yeah. And so there's an interesting quality about it because, you know, while you're saying they're not super attractive, there's something about them that is interesting with all those distressed materials and the little pops of color. and. Yeah. Well, you know, my work is always this play between outside versus inside, both conceptually, what is going on inside of us versus what we show to the world and also within the sculptures. And so I think there is this beautiful quality of showing a slight level of discomfort and pain on the outside, but in a way that that feels like an old sweater. Mm -hmm. You know, we've all experienced the gamut of emotions And so sometimes when you run across one that you know inherently, there are people who struggle with sadness all the time. And you see something sad and it it touches you in a way and it feels almost like an old sweater, like something you know so well that it's almost comfortable. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really, for me, it's a challenge and a fascinating experiment to see if I can capture some of those emotions that that we all experience on a regular basis and some of the ones that that fortunately not as many experience. But if I can capture it in a way that still somehow is alluring, you want to know more, you want to understand it better. There's always this this desire for community building in my work. So wanting to help people understand and see people better to create a sense of empathy, more kindness towards each other. Because I think the more you see and the more you understand and the more you empathize, the kinder we become. So 
there, there's always a push for that. Well, it's been you know fascinating to hear you kind of talk about these ideas in your work, and you know, especially to seeing the evolution and you know the relationship between the sculptural forms and the installations and how those have evolved. What what type of things you know do you have coming up in the future? I know that. You know, we were just talking a little bit about the challenges of having, you know, no studio space, but are there things that you're working on, you know, into 2021 that you're excited about? And then, you know, where can people follow your work and and make sure that they're up to date? Well, you can follow my work at my website, RebeccaCasement.com or my Instagram, rmcasement underscore art. I post pretty regularly on the Instagram and I update the website regularly. I am in the process of resetting right now. You know, I've had a ceramic studio at university for a number of years now. So to move to a home studio in a basement is an adjustment (laughs) 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 or we're going to call it an an adjustment. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm still creating because these sculptures exist, but it is a reset in how I think and, you know, how I how I move forward. I'm excited about creating a new sculpture series that I've started that I don't have any pictures of yet and really continuing to work on these sculptures. I have a solo exhibition coming up, probably won't be until 2022 because the gallery is shut down with all the COVID things Mm -hmm. and, you know, other things in the pipeline. But for right now, it's just quiet making, which is quite frankly, a nice change of pace after nine years of (laughs) nine years straight of school. It's nice to just make at home. (laughs) So, and I would imagine too, though, you're going to be applying to all sorts of spaces. So when hopefully things come back to quote unquote normal, you know, you might have those challenges of putting all this in into a space and and figuring out, you know, how a variety of work is going to interact. So again, that's all, all very exciting to think about in, in the future. That's the stuff I like doing. So right now you make, you make and make and make. And then when the opportunities arise, then you have fun putting the puzzle pieces together. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to apply to the, the competition. It's been great to learn all about your work and, you know, it's, it's fantastic. So thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. It was, it was a great pleasure to talk with you. Really was. Thanks so much, Rebecca, for joining me and having such an awesome conversation. Please go and check out her website, which has tons of work, RebeccaCasement.com, and follow her on Instagram at rncasement underscore art, and that way you can always see new work as well as learn about new shows and exhibitions like her solo that's coming up in 2022. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, head on over to studiobreak.com and check out some episodes and artists that you miss. You can learn about all sorts of new artists there. Once again, each of our posts have images of the work and links directly to the website so you can check out more work. You can listen right there on studiobreak.com or just click those links and subscribe to the podcast. And hey, if you like subscribing to podcasts, please leave us a positive review. That'd be awesome or help spread the word via social media, which is super easy to do. If you like our Facebook page, if you follow us on Twitter at Studio Break, and of course on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. Again, all of those things earn you karma points for the studio so that you have those beautiful days where everything comes together and you just rock it. Once again, if you are finding out about Studio Break for the first time, check out some of the recent interviews with Jen Small, Doug Russell, which were both super awesome guests and recently featured. 
Today's music is by Remedial Indie Band, which features Ben Cohan and myself. You can check out his work at mbencohan.com, and be sure to follow him on Instagram at mbencohanstudio. Also excited to have Brett Beery on bass for the outro song. Be sure to follow him on Instagram at Brett Beery and listen to his music on Bandcamp. That's bbeery.bandcamp.com. Nice expanded sound there. If you want to see some of my paintings, though, you can head on over to davidlinaway.com or you can find me on Facebook, on Twitter, Instagram, at David Linaway. Be sure to say hello, especially if you enjoy listening to this podcast and there's a recent episode or something that you enjoyed. Love hearing that stuff on Instagram. So be sure to say hello. And, of course, I wish you a fabulous studio weekend making and creating. So stay safe out there. We'll talk to you real soon.